Of the many films addressing the Holocaust, it would appear that the most penetrative are documentaries. Amongst them, Alan René's Night in Fog, Claude Landsman's Shoah and André Singer's Night Will Fall. Certainly, there are a few great dramas. Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, Frank Pearson's Conspiracy and Roman Polanski's The Pianist. But powerful as they are, the newly released Son of Soul, made by first-time Hungarian director Laszlo Nemes, is a defining event. To explain that, I need to go back over half a century. 1960 saw one of the first films to address the death camps, Giulio Pontecorvo's Capo. Although most famous today for the Battle of Algiers, when Capo was released, Pontecorvo was condemned in one of the most exoriating pieces of film criticism ever written. Capo refers to the inmates in the Nazi concentration camps, who were appointed as supervisors to lead the other prisoners in work details. That is a heavily sanitised definition of what they were forced to do. What a capo really did was carry out the will of the camp's guards, berate their fellow prisoners, corral their fellow prisoners, abuse them, spy on them, beat them into complete subservience, steer them towards the showers. After the prisoners had been gassed, capos were then forced to remove the dead bodies, wash down the chambers from the filth that had ensued, and burn the corpses. Then, after the burning, load the ashes onto wagons and shovel them into nearby rivers or landfills. And for that work, a capo's life was spared. Or rather, a capo was allowed to live until the commandant decided they had served their purpose. Pontecorvo's capo follows Edith, a 14-year-old Parisian Jewess, who, along with her parents, is transported to one of the death camps. Her parents are murdered, and despite her age, or perhaps because of it, Edith is appointed a capo. Over the course of time, Edith meets Therese, a prisoner who so despairs of her fate, she takes her own life. And it was that scene for which Pontecorvo and his film were condemned. But it wasn't so much what Pontecorvo had chosen to depict, but the way he had depicted it. Therese emerges from one of the huts and makes a run for the electrified fence. The camera tracks with her. Then Pontecorvo cuts to a shot outside the fence as Teresa runs up and hurls herself against it. Then we have a close-up of the dying Therese. And finally, as the terrified inmates are herded along in the background, there is an angle from a little bit further down the fence, from where Pontecorvo tracks in to a close-up of the dead Therese. Writing in Cahiers du Cinéma, critic Jacques Rivette, who soon became a filmmaker in his own right, scolded Pontecorvo saying, This man deserves nothing but the most profound contempt. Why? Pontecorvo had set out to make an honest film depicting the cruelty of the camps, while at the same time retaining respect for the victims they were denied in real life. However, intentions are not enough. It is your modus operandi that counts. According to some, and I agree with them, filmmaking is a matter of morality, and how you stage the events in your film requires rigorous forethought. If not, you're going on instinct, and if that fails you, you're exposed for everyone to see. The same goes for poetry, literature and music. Specific words, sentence structures and harmonies are used because they mean specific things. As Ernest Hemingway once declared, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. It means that art holds a mirror up to life, showing us who we are. Angels and devils, victims and villains. Bringing it back to cinema, 
Jean-Luc Godard declared that tracking shots are a matter of morality. So, as far as Rovette was concerned, Pontecorvo's decision to track in on Therese to record the moment of her death was an act of profanity. It was too sensual, the movement too redolent of the Hollywood melodrama, the musical and the romance. While I don't think Pontecorvo was wrong in his choice of shots, Rovette's observation is valid, and no doubt the way a film can frame such events played very heavily on Laszlo Nemesis' mind when he was preparing to make Son of Soul. Like Edith, Soul is a capo, but portrayed with astonishing fatigue by Geza Roig, Soul is not a young teenager. He is a man of about, well, it's hard to tell because the Holocaust has so carved itself about his face. Nemes made a decision to stay close to Soul's face. That results in a lot of camera movement, but there is no way anyone could hold him in contempt or even condemn his decision to frame everything the way he does. For the most part, a handheld camera follows Sol in close-up as he goes about his horrific chores. And over the course of two days, Nemesis' camera relentlessly stalks Sol as if it were death itself lingering on his shoulder. The close proximity to Sol's face serves a number of purposes. It means that we see very little of the Holocaust. Here is Nemes. My film never shows the horror in an open way. It's always very restricted to the main character. It's very narrow, narrow in its focus. It, it, it leaves uh, everything to the, mostly everything, to the imagination of the viewer. It relies on the viewer because now the viewer has to go through the journey of this film. And it becomes personal because the, the, the imagination is at work. Staying so near to his face means also that everything else is either out of focus or off camera. Depicting the Holocaust, what remains off camera is crucial, because if you decide to put it on camera, the question then is, how do you stage or reenact the atrocities? Nothing can come close, and every attempt you make to stage it runs the deep risk of insult, if not desecration. Better then to suggest. So watching Nemesis' film, you can't help but be reminded of what Ludwig Wittgenstein said of the Shoah. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. Son of Saul is anything but silent. The camera may dwell on Saul's face, but the din of death never stops. The barking of the dogs, the reports of gunfire, the deathly screams of the prisoners, the rumble of the ovens, the shoveling of the ashes. Son of Saul proves sound makes you see things that are not on screen. By having the camera follow Saul, it attains an agitated state, and that state is sustained by the frequency with which Nemes elects to use extended takes. It means that the events are taking place in real time and not being manipulated by editing, which means we experience the events as Saul does, which also means the camera never blinks. The motivation for anyone to make any film about such atrocities is simple. It is to bear witness, and that explains Nemesis' choice. We are always looking at Saul, and if we're paying attention, we will quickly notice that it's only on rare occasions that Saul looks anyone in the eye, or indeed anyone seeks Saul's eye. Any eye contact is hostile and aggressive. The administrators of the Holocaust had figured out that the basis of all human interaction is eye contact. Socially, eye contact brings facial recognition. From there, facial expression. 
after which words are exchanged. So, with little to no eye contact, there is barely any social interaction. Just orders. As for the exchange of words, the Nazis forced together so many nationalities that few prisoners could understand one another. But even if they could, the Nazis had so swiftly debased the prisoners, their very beings were reduced to the level of machinery. And so Nemesis' decision to make Saul a capo is crucial. It means that Saul is a participant in his own annihilation, thus further stripping him of his own identity. And once that is gone, what has Saul got left? Here is actor Geza Roig, who plays Saul. This film, I think, fully exposes the crime, the, the, the most horrific crime of the Nazis, which is deliberately picking and forcing Jews to burn Jews. In other words, the system was working as, as, the, as like, like this. How can the most Jews to be murdered by the least amount of Germans being involved? The, these people had no genuine choice. The, the sense of moral choice just vanished in such situation at gunpoint, because again they they they, they forced them to be you know assisting into the extermination extermination process, and that's to me the most diabolic aspect of of Nazism that that to make Cain out of Abel. More than any other film before it, Son of Saul reveals the obscene apparatus of the Holocaust, taking us down into the bowels of the engine, to the burning furnaces the elevators packed with corpses, the morgues to further defile those corpses, the spaces where, before being reduced to ashes, the dead are referred to as pieces. However, there are a few occasions where Saul dares to establish eye contact. On one occasion, he is forced to his knees and a gun is held to his head. Saul does not look up at the soldier to plead for his life. Instead, Nemes pushes the camera around so that we are facing Saul, looking right at him. In a film where human interaction is so prohibited, it is a revelatory moment. Saul is so traumatised, he does not react to our look. But how can he? We're not there to help him. We're just there to watch. Then, towards the end of the film, there is another moment where Saul establishes eye contact. But I think it best if I not describe what happens, only to say it is even more devastating than before. But long before the ending, Nemes had to decide how to begin his film. The three dramas I've already mentioned, Schindler's List, Conspiracy and The Pianist, all begin before the Holocaust starts up. That way, they show or herald the gradual but methodical process by which the Nazis exterminated an estimated 11 million people. Jews, Romanese, Slavs, ethnic Poles, Soviet citizens, homosexuals, communists, Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as the physically and mentally disabled. The killing machine was so complex and detailed that it needed some 200,000 people working over 40,000 facilities in Nazi Germany and German-occupied territories. It operated on so vast a scale, it is all but beyond human comprehension. Only it's not. The Holocaust was a human creation. 11 million individuals were murdered and 200,000 individuals were complicit in their destruction. Which brings us back yet again to Nemesis' decision to keep it all on close-up of Saul's face. In fact, the film begins with an out-of-focus shot 
showing us a cluster of trees in the mid-distance. We hear birds singing. Then a figure walks towards us, and as he approaches, he comes into a focused close-up. And from then on, almost the entire film is shot on Saul's face. We have no time frame, nor do we know where we are. Is it Wednesday afternoon, Saturday morning, November? Are we in Auschwitz, Dachau, Sobibor? As to who Saul is and how he got there. Primo Levi was a Holocaust survivor and wrote many books on his experiences. Survival at Auschwitz, published in English as Is This a Man, contains the oft-recounted incident when, in the depths of winter, Levy was suffering from thirst and reached through his cell window to grab an icicle suspended from the roof. A Nazi guard thundered at him and knocked it out of his hand. Why? asked Levy. Here there is no why, answered the guard. The same for Son of Saul. I said we don't know who Saul is. That's not entirely true. We know his surname. Auslander. It is an Ashkenazan Jewish name that literally means foreigner, outsider, stranger, alien. For centuries in Europe, no matter where Jews were born, and no matter where Jews lived, they were often regarded as foreign. Consequently, Jews were ostracised, made strange, considered alien. But in the end, Nemesis' decision to give Saul the Auslander surname works in another way. It is there to remind us that Saul is neither foreign, nor strange, nor alien. That's not just a close-up we've been watching for over a hundred minutes. Nemesis' camera is a mirror that he's been holding up to life, showing us who we are.